You are listening to Proof Text, a Glossa House podcast exploring scripture with Dr. T. Michael W. Halcombe and Dr. Frederick J. Long. Welcome and enjoy. Hello and welcome to Proof Text. I'm Michael Halcombe. I'm here with Fred Long. Uh, Fred, how you doing? Hey, good. Thanks, Michael. I'm doing well. How about you? I'm doing all right. Uh, looking forward to this episode, which is kind of another different episode uh, in this episode, what we're going to do, because we have conferences on the mind at the moment, um, is we're going to talk about just what are you working on? I know you have a couple conference papers coming up, and then I have one uh, coming up as well. And so we'll just talk about the sort of things that we're working on. So yeah, why don't you get us started? You're going to be presenting in Denver a couple of papers, I believe. So, yeah, let's yeah. talk about I, I have no idea what they are, so I'm okay, eager so to hear. Yeah, so Society of Biblical Literature, this conference, annual conference, there's going to be anywhere between like eight and 10,000 people attending uh, from all over the world. And uh, it's always fun to go. You can learn a lot in paper sessions, like sitting under someone's paper and some of them are real stinkers too at the same time so <laughs> kind of hit or miss uh, there a little bit but sometimes i mean you go to a paper session and you listen to someone's paper and you'll you'll be like i will never think of that passage the same way again like that's really challenge you know really uh, you know helpful and mm -hmm. so um whenever i go to these conferences i always want to present a paper, but then when I present a paper, I'm like, why did I present a paper? Because it's it's a bit stressful and uh, it's a lot of work actually. So this yeah. year uh, I had two proposals. One of them I wrote up in like five minutes right before the deadline mm -hmm. uh, and they were both accepted. So I can mm -hmm. write good proposals. Um, the trickier thing is to to have a good paper, and usually I can pull it off, <laughs> but it can be real stressful. So I'm going to try to get these done before actually arriving, so I can yeah, not right. stressed out about them. Okay, so that's not going to happen. I, I've uh, been yeah. too many conferences with you. That's it's not going to happen. Me pull away. Yeah, no, I don't want to do that, uh, particularly because uh, my wife will be attending my paper sessions, and I want to do a good job yeah. for her. But I also like to just be clear, you know, there's important topics. So one of them is in a new section on numismatics and biblical interpretation. I, I don't know if that's the exact title, but numismatics is the field of ancient coins. Uh, coins. And so they're looking for they were looking for papers that intersect uh, interpreting biblical passage with with some ancient artifact of a coin. And so uh, I love coins. I have dreams about coins, <laughs> finding ancient coins, actually. Um, I haven't found any ancient coins yet, but I've had dreams about them. And I wonder if it has to do with, you know, researching things with ancient coins. Wow. I think there's an allusion to a very important coin type and so this paper is called Who is the Ultimate Pater Patriae, Ephesians 3.14 in its imperial, Roman Imperial and Rhetorical Contexts. So mm -hmm. my abstract reads in Ephesians 3.14 of 19, there are 
Paul offers a prayer to the Father from whom every family or fatherland in heavens and upon earth is named. While commentators note the obvious wordplay with pater patria, that is, father from whom every patria, uh, uh, that's the wordplay in Greek, commentators note that. What is not considered is whether the author, whom I take as Paul, intended to undercut the onomastic practice of emperors obtaining and publicizing their pater patriae title, including imperial coinage. Indeed, for Augustus, this title, Pater Patriae, which means father of the fatherland, was his crowning achievement placed out of chronological order, climactically last in his res gestae divi Augusti, that is his deeds of accomplishment. So Augustus wrote this deeds of accomplishment and made it into a memorial uh, uh, at his mausoleum in Latin, it's also found uh, in Asia Minor, um, in Greek and Latin, I believe. I'll double check that. Um, so he he lists his accomplishments and the titles that he received, and basically it's like a chronological order of of his things. There's a little bit of thematic ordering, but basically one thing that really stands out is that he places last receiving this title, Pater Patriae, Father of the mm. Fatherland, for saving the, um, the Republic, for saving Rome from internal uh, strife. So this was a title that was given to politicians, and he received it. And then subsequent emperors also received this title somewhat like honorifically. Well, this title is put onto coinage. And at first it's written out in full. It's like written around the outer rim, uh, the inscription. Mm-hmm. And then it gets uh, starts to get abbreviated PP. Um, so it's found in Augustus's coin, Caligula, Claudius, Nero. And I list those coins there. So although the Latin patria, the Latin word patria is rendered by the Greek patris in, in inscriptions, so patris is another Greek word instead of patria. The lexical choice of Paul in Ephesians 3.14, patria, and its phrasing more clearly imitates the Latin patria fatherland and also carries a broader semantic scope in contrast to patris. This paper thus explores this important pater patriae title and its use on imperial coins, especially of the Julio-Claudian lineage. It also explores how the politically charged and trumping nature of Ephesians makes this proposal possible, if not arguably likely. Methodologically, the paper urges the importance of contextual relevance and Greek grammatical prominence devices to help support numismatic interpretations, which basically means that, you know, when Paul does this in Ephesians 3.14, it's a trumping move. Like he says, every family in the heavens and upon the earth. Well, that would include the biggest and most noteworthy family, the family of the Caesars, the emperors, the family of that you know presides over Rome. And so this is a trumping move um, at this point in the letter of Ephesians. So yeah, I think Paul is deliberately uh, has in mind 
um, subverting this very commonly known, very important political title, pater patriae. So you're saying that, I mean, in a nutshell, like that you have this emperor and for him, he's got this long list, laundry list of achievements, but the greatest of them all is being father of the fatherland. And um, Paul comes along and when he writes Ephesians, he's, he's being imperially subversive by saying, uh, well, you might be the father of this fatherland, but God is the father of every, every fatherland. Yeah. 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 Hmm. In heaven and on earth. So, you know, of course, the big father in Greco-Roman world would have been Zeus, Jupiter, which the emp- Roman emperor embodies. Um, and that's seen on iconography. The, uh, the emperor on statues looks like Zeus, Jupiter, you know, has uh, Jupiter's eagle often like uh, right next to him or underneath him. He's holding a lightning bolt, which is, you know, what Zeus and Jupiter holds. So this is all very clearly established that the emperor is like a regent of Jupiter Zeus on earth and Jupiter Zeus is the father God. So, um, so yeah, exactly. I believe that Paul is really struggling to assert the fatherhood of God over all other claims of fatherhood hmm. and a family. Yep. So if, if the emperor reads this or catches wind of this, how does the emperor respond? I think it's subversive. Yeah. I think he would recognize a subversive uh, tone here. Yeah. He, he would be yeah. angry and upset with Paul, in other words? Yeah. Yeah. Ephesians is thoroughly political. And that's something that I've written extensively about. And in this paper, I I might summarize a little bit or maybe treat with some of the questions that might arise. I mean, it ends with the household codes, which has to do with like the organization of the family. And radically, the organization of the family is around the Lord Jesus. And um, yeah, for for many people, I think the immediate question well, I know at least for some more conservative folks, uh, maybe this is brand new to a lot of people. They've never thought of this. I think, by the way, you just triggered my memory. We should do an episode um, on uh, the issue in Ephesians um, of where people often take the verse as a reference to Satan. You're saying, no, it's, it's actually a reference to the emperor. Maybe that's a good future episode. Uh, I can't remember what verse that is. Wasn't that wasn't that our first episode? <laughs> that was, was our it? first episode. Wow. Yeah, the first episode was dealing with the evil one. Yeah. See, so uh, did we talk about that though? Your Ephesians work. Yeah, I'm surprised yeah. he forgot it. I mean, it's so important. Well, like, no, I everyone... haven't forgotten. I haven't forgotten the work. Obviously, I just remember oh, yeah. the work, but I yeah. forgot that we discussed that in the episode. Um, yeah. Well, I think I did summarize it, but yeah, I'd be glad to spend even more time on it. Yeah, it's, it's really fun research, actually. That's part of the um, context, yeah. So a, a lot of people immediately, Romans 13 might come to mind where Paul is writing and saying, you know, everybody, you be subject to governing authorities for God has put the governing authorities in place. How do you, how do you handle that? Like in conjunction with what you're saying. I mean, on the one hand, you're saying Paul is 
is being himself very subversive to an emperor. On the other hand, Romans 13 seems to be saying, uh, no, you are to submit to the governing authorities. God has put them in place and you're to respect them. Like what, how do you square those? Any thoughts? Well, actually, Paul says there's no authority except from God and those which exist are established by God. So most fundamentally, God is the origin of human political structures. So uh, they're subjected to God and we can be subjected to them only in view of the fact that they're, they're from God or need to be established or subjected to God. Um, so I think Paul is speaking more abstractly in terms of understanding that there are, there are structures of leadership and governance in the world and that these should not be just right away rejected. Uh, I think the standard that these rulers uphold, however, will be judged by God. And so um, and Paul, I think, is speaking particularly about an issue of whether to pay taxes or not. And so that's what's going to come to the, the surface in just a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's kind of one of the underlying reasons why he's speaking this way. Uh, and he, he's talking he's talking about like resisting by not paying taxes and causing kind of civic s- strife, which Paul would consider like unnecessary civic strife. Um, I mean, obviously, Paul would would not say, well, you know, if the government says you should do this immoral thing, yeah. you know, therefore you should submit and do that immoral thing. I, I don't think that's, Paul's not speaking to that question. I think it's very clearly that that we're supposed to live differently and live according to God, live according to Christ, and Christ Jesus is Lord. And so that that kind of living, that level of moral living example that transcends and is above the issues that he's talking about here. Here he's talking about issues of paying tax and being a basic citizen and being a good citizen in terms of not causing trouble. Mm-hmm. Um, for, yeah. So he's speaking a bit ideally. He says rulers are not a cause for fear for for those who do good, but for those who do evil. Um so Which obvi- obviously that cannot be <laughs> referring to to every ruler everywhere every time right um, right yeah this is not a timeless truth in other words cuz there we all know there are some horrible rulers i i think i mean it's i an idealized about- idealized truth like this is how they should be Yes, yeah. I mean, I I think it's also possible in a way to read Romans 13 as if Paul's speaking sarcastically. That could be uh, one way to read it. But yeah, I I tend to lean toward him saying, all right, so God's put these rulers in place uh, to serve the people. But if they're in place and they're not doing that, they're not serving the people, then and they've usurped that position that God has put them in, then it it is it behooves the uh, each Christian to sort of hold them accountable, and that may look like being subversive. Um, so I think yeah. those can actually square, but you know, this is yeah. one that people 
often yeah. come back to it, it is the duty of of christians i think when like kings or presidents or emperors uh, who are placed in those positions are not serving the best interests of the people. It is the duty of the Christian to speak up and remind them of who put them there. Yeah, there's a lot of examples in Jewish scripture, you know, Hebrew scripture of of uh, prophets and people acting prophetically and speaking out against corruption of of uh, political leaders. Yeah. So Jesus himself, I mean, that's why he died. He died because he was confronting the establishment and uh, was really caught in the crossfire between two political groups and leaders that hated each other, Romans and Jews. And so both of those parties are responsible for Jesus's death. And Paul knows that, you know, he knows that. And so we can't and we shouldn't think of him here as advocating just uh, complete compliance, even even if you uh, have to, you know, give up. Your and renege on your devotion to God. You know, if the mm-hmm. emperor says, you know, you can't worship God. Well, I guess you can't worship God. <laughs> that's ridiculous. I mean, that's the whole basis of Romans is that we can worship God in Christ and we should, and we live a different kind of righteousness and we're led by the spirit. So here he's talking about broader issues of kind of idealized uh, states and purposes of government and then particularly like verse 6 is really important, chapter 13, verse 6. For because of this, you also pay taxes for rulers or servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Um, mm. And so this was an issue. This is one of the issues that they're trying to get Jesus uh, on was right. not paying taxes. Uh, and that's really clear in Luke's gospel. And Luke wants to say, no, uh, Christians, followers of Christ are actually good Roman citizens. Yeah. So they're not causing troubles. They're they're sub, you know they submit you know when they need to and that that kinds of thing. So yeah, it's I think that's the issue that Paul is speaking to. Mm. Yeah. Well, what's your um what's your second paper going to be about? My second paper is for the Greek language and linguistics section, and it's it's called construing purpose constructions in the New Testament. A cognitive grammatical model sounds very so, fancy. Yeah, very fancy. Uh, <laughs> fancy. Uh, okay, so basically, what's a cognitive grammatical model? Basically, there's a guy by the name of Ronald uh, Langecker who's been working on a, a model of grammar called cognitive grammar, and basically, he's he's attempting to describe how human communication and language works according to principles of cognition and how our brain, how our brains process the world and, and function. And really it's quite insightful. So I summarize a little bit of his kind of model, and then I'm going to apply that to these types of constructions, which are called purpose constructions. So purpose constructions are constructions which talk or assume a means, some kind of means to some kind of end or goal. And so this is marked in Greek language by special construction. So, for example, let your light shine before people in order that they would see your good deeds and give praise to your Father and glorify your Father in heaven. Now, that's a purpose construction. So, let your light shine. That's the means. 
in order that here's the statement of the goal. They might see your good deeds and and uh, glorify your Father in heaven. So that construction there uses a conjunction opos. Opos is marked as manner. It's got a little bit of manner in it. The os at the end is a it's a conjunction of manner. Um, that's in contradiction or in distinction from another construction, which would be with ina, ina, which means in order that. And there's a slight difference there. And people also struggle with that verse because later on in the Sermon of the Mount, that's in that's uh, Matthew five sixteen. Later on in the sermon, uh, Jesus talks about um, don't let people see your good deeds, your acts of righteousness. You know, don't do them mm-hmm. to be seen by them. Well. What's there's a little bit of a contradiction there. Like, how can he say that in six one, but then in five sixteen he says, you know, let your light shine. Well, this is where I, I will list. I've listed like ten different types of these purpose constructions. They have different words in them, different different ways of formulating them, and basically, I'm trying to pay attention to the semantic marking of each one, how they're slightly different. And, and, and that difference is, uh, affects what's called construal. So when we speak and we use one word or one construction as opposed to another, that choice is a matter of construal. That is construing how the, the, the means to end is being conceived. So in my mind then, whenever I see a purpose clause with opos as opposed to ina, I'm thinking that's a matter of construal. Opos, mm. I would suggest, is marking manner in it, mm. as well as a, a, an end. So I would translate it something like this. Let your light shine in such a way that people would see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. That's mm. a little bit different than just a basic in order that. Yeah, In such a way that because... There is there is a need to adjust one's manner and motivation and these kinds of things. And that's precisely what Jesus is doing in, in Matthew 6, 1 and following, where he's talking about fasting, prayer, and almsgiving. Don't do your deeds of righteousness for people to, to see them. So that's, you know, what Jesus clarifies later on. Well, Greek has, you know, 10 different, I've identified 10 different purpose constructions ranging from infinitives, infinitives with the article, uh, prepositional phrases. There's a dative of means, which implies a, a purpose construction. You've got conjunctions like ina, opos. You've got other weird conjunctions, which are kind of rare, like mekri, until, mm-hmm. yeah. which adds a temporal dimension. Uh, that's another type of construction, akri, mekri. Mm-hmm. Then you have prepositions, prosto with the infinitive or isto with the infinitive. And like, what's the deal with those? Um, and then you have the future participle that occurs 10 times. That's a, that's a classical construction to use a participle with it in the future participle uh, to con- and that indicates purpose. And then I actually, I was looking at uh, Ephesians 4, and I'm going to use that as a test case as well as that Matthew example. Uh, and in, in, Ma- in, in Ephesians 4, like verse 7 through 
16, I think there are like five or six different types of purpose constructions. And so I'm going to walk around those and um, use that as a test case uh, of, of how each one construes something a little bit differently. Yeah. Hmm. So that's my paper. How do you think that'll be uh, received? What do you think the reception will be? Well, it depends how clearly I can present it. Um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'll use uh, handouts, uh, good, good PowerPoint. One of the slides, and I actually showed it to my advanced Greek discourse Greek students. They loved it. It, it actually shows these types of purpose clauses in terms of like a prototype and then like development. And because what I'm interested in too is, is prominence. Like which of these constructions has more prominence, has more punch? In my view, the, the prosto, isto, those ones have always seemed to be to be more prominent. And it's an archaic way of doing it. It also combines the preposition construction with the infinitive construction. So it has like a larger, mm. what I would call prototype semblance. Like it's bringing two types of basic ways of doing purpose and bringing them together. Um, and oh, the one thing I was going to say that the 10th construction, which I think maybe is the most prominent is when Paul says, speaking the truth in love, let us grow up into him uh, who was our head. So basically, the construction is a fronted instrumental participle with a command form. And to me, that's the most prominent because it's it's rare. It's also um, an injunction on what we should be doing. Hmm. So to me, there's like the highest degree of prominence because it's actually linked to behavioral command. Um, and so, yeah, I think that's also you know, a type of purpose construction. And in the context, you know, truth is very important and he's established that. Um, so, yeah, I think, hmm. I don't know how it would be received. I usually will condense all this, you know, information into like a two page handout and hopefully people will begin to think about things a bit differently. Look at the yeah. marking of the construction and, uh, I'm finding that not a lot, not a lot of grammars like recognize the variety of constructions for starters. So, mm. you know, from the you know this point on, people will be like, "Huh, that's right. There are different constructions, and mm. maybe we need to teach this a little bit differently." You know? Great. Well, sounds like some good research on two pretty different topics. So, uh, yeah, I, I hope you can get those done <laughs> pre-conference. And then, yeah. you know, my, my other hope, I hope you'll record them uh, so that, uh, you know, they could be actually be future proof text episodes and folks can hear, uh, hear yeah. what you have to say. Yeah, I'll try to do that. After listening, head on over to glossahouse.com. There you'll find all kinds of Bible, language, and theology resources. Glossa House has a stock of audio, video, apps, digital, and print resources to meet your teaching and learning needs. Best of all, everything is innovative, accessible, and affordable. Glossa House, language resources for the global community. And uh, Michael, uh, you're, you're going to be presenting at a conference and working on a paper. What, tell us about that conference and your paper. 
Yeah, so um, I have mentioned in a past episode that I have just uh, been accepted into this group called the CPT, the Center for Pastor Theologians. Um, This is essentially pastors who um, are PhD or terminal degree holders, um, but they're serving in the pastorate and care deeply about uh, theological formation within the context of the church. And um, so for me, uh, that's obviously a huge concern. Um, one of our four pillars at our congregation is, is uh, deep study. So deep study, uh, deep prayer, deep service, deep community, and sort of we trying to build everything around those. So I care very much about um, theological formation within the context of of the congregation, the local congregation. And um, I'm not one of these preachers that is out for a big crowd on Sunday morning. If we happen to have a big crowd, fine. If we don't, fine. But I've kind of resigned myself to the fact that because the preaching is deep and meaty, I just had someone I've had, I actually have had people leave because of it, but I've, I also just had people, somebody tell me last week, I feel so smart when I leave church on Sundays. And I'm like, that's the, that's one of the greatest compliments I could ever get, you know, mm. uh, to hear somebody make such a remark. I feel so smart when I leave church on Sundays. Mm. Um, very encouraging to hear that. And uh, so this is something I care deeply about, and you're going to hear deep preaching, deep study every Sunday at the Bridge Church. Um, So that's sort of a long segue or setup into what I'm talking about. So I'm part of this pastor theologians group, and we have cohorts. So every year they accept a new small group of uh, pastors into a cohort, and they're called Ecclesial Theologians. And so I'm part of a new group for 2022-2023, and we have these annual meetings for our cohorts um, once a year. So our meeting is in February in Chicago, and they had a call for papers for that. And so I'm going to – I'm working on – a project for that. And I don't have it like fully outlined. There's about three different sections. I see this easily turning into a book. So it's a little challenging to know exactly where I want to go. Um, but um, I had a lunch meeting with a former student recently, and this former student was attempting to convince me that it is always God's will to heal. Mm-hmm. And I was saying, no, I, I believe on the, you know, firstly that you misunderstand what God's will is. And she's like, no, God's will is to heal. It's Shalom. And I'm like, I think you also misunderstand Shalom. And um, so I was saying, look, Paul is very clear. God's will is our sanctification and through that sanctification to draw people to Christ. So in a simple way that I, I say it is God's will is through our holy living to draw people to Christ. 
but this person was insistent no god's will is always to heal and mm. obviously i think obviously this person is coming out of a very uh, charismatic pentecostal tradition and so during the course of that discussion i was saying well you know what do you make of all the people like who've prayed for healing but aren't and then I went on to say, like, well, don't say say someone is has a what we would call a disability, or the, a family brings a child with a disability to the congregation where you serve, and the first thing y'all do is ask, "Can we pray for your disability?" Don't you find that like very offensive? And the response I got was, "Well." The gospel is offensive. And I'm, I just kind of did like a double face palm at that point. And mm. uh, so I'm, I'm getting to where I'm going. That's like two parts of it. And then the discussion turned to, well, I'm asking her this question. Is your view of so-called heaven or the afterlife big enough to have people with their differences or what you would call dysfunctions or disabilities in it. <laughs> so in other words, might people in the afterlife retain their differences? So their cognitive difference, their physical difference, or if you want to put it in a more, I guess, traditional way to ask, could there be, could people have disabilities in heaven? <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and so I'm arguing, yes, they totally could. It, does it mean they absolutely will? No. But could they? Um, yeah, and I think that uh, those disabilities, they'll, they'll be sort of redeemed or those differences will be redeemed. But it all raises the question of what is a disability anyways? And is that even the right word? And so that's why I'm using the word difference. And so... Um, I, I have two directions that I might be going with this paper. One is that, will there be disabilities in the afterlife? And the other is, is it God's will always to heal? And that I'm answering no. And to, will there be disabilities? I'm answering yes. So I'm, I'm straddling right now on which direction to take the paper. Cause really that's two different papers. Um, and I'm probably going to go the direction uh, right now of uh, is it God's will always to heal? Because this is a huge Pentecostal yeah. claim. Like Pentecostals are always saying this. And they're starting to build these theologies out of this. And um, yeah, I, I take a lot of issue with that. So the paper, I think, is going to attempt to undermine that claim that it's always God's will to heal. Yeah. 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 This is, um, how is this related to prosperity gospel? Is this yeah, well, like that, another form of prosperity gospel? Yeah. Um, yes, yeah, so that's, that's a, a, a portion of it. Definitely. I mean, when you look at, um, pre enlightenment versus post enlightenment, uh, thinking, you know, post enlightenment, with the rise of the sciences and especially the medical sciences, the push has become to eradicate uh, 
disease and disability and extend life as long as possible. So it's this sort of, um, yeah, that sort of view. And so that has made its way into the church that uh, there is no place for disability or difference in the church. It needs to be eradicated and people just need to be healed already. And so I'm stepping back and I'm saying, you know, looking at some of the work that disability theologians have done and attempting to offer a much healthier view on this. And so, yeah, the the prosperity approach has, I think, really been detrimental to uh, the church and its treatment of people with uh, these differences. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So, yeah, what, I mean, I, go ahead. Yeah. No, no, um, you go continue. I'm going to ask something. I was just going to say, you know, I, um, one of the things is I started doing research a while back, um, of, you know, people often ask the question of why aren't people healed as much today as they were in biblical times? And my answer is they are. Um, and so mm-hmm. I did this. I did this research where I looked across the entire sweep of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation, and actually arrived at some pretty interesting numbers. I found that uh, in the Old Testament there are eighty-three what we would call miracles, right? So I, I thought there would be way more because the Old Testament is huge. Um, so there are twenty-three thousand one hundred forty-five verses in the Old Testament, and when we gather the eighty-three miracle stories, they span three hundred seventy-one verses. So percentage-wise, this means that only 1.6% of the Old Testament deals with miracles. Or stated differently, 99.4% of the Old Testament deals with just the day-to-day, right, the mundane of life. And when you get to the New Testament, there's, there does seem to be a lot more miraculous stuff going on there, right? No, not really. There are actually only 80 miracles that occur in the New Testament. There are 7,957 verses in the New Testament. And of those, only 376 cover miracles. That means only 4.72% of the New Testament focus on miracles, which includes the the divine healings, 4.72%, right? So let me zoom out just real quickly. There are 31,102 verses in all of Scripture. There are 163 miracles in all of Scripture that span 747 verses. That means that for the entirety of Scripture, only 2.4% of Scripture talks about miracles. Or stated differently, 97.6% of Scripture talks about the day-to-day, the mundane, bread-making, traveling, cooking, eating, teaching, raising families, working. And you know what? The same is true in our lives today. God is there in the cooking, cleaning, working, raising families. and um, yeah, so do I think divine healings still exist? Absolutely. And I think they exist at about the same rate they did in ancient times. And, uh, so one thing I'm doing in this project, Fred, is I'm also going through and I'm looking at every single instance of where someone was not healed. If you Google, like, you know, like healing in the Bible, what you're going to get is like, hundreds of books that say, you know, how to pray effective prayers for healing, uh, how to, how to get your healing or how to get healed and stay healed. And, uh, nobody's written a book on, you know, the, the non healings of scripture, as far as I know. And so, uh, there's a bunch of them 
there's a whole lot of them, and that's what I think this uh, paper is uh, going to largely look at, the, the non-healings of Scripture, Uzziah, Jeroboam, Elisha, Leah, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Ahijah, uh, the four disabled men in Second Kings, Samson, Mephibosheth, um, and then you go on into the New Testament, you have Epaphroditus, Trophimus, Timothy, uh, Paul even had an ailment that wasn't healed. Um, yeah. I don't think that's his thorn in the flesh. I think that's something different. But we do know that he had eyesight issues. Uh, you have the disciples who can't cast out a demon, although Jesus does come along and do that. Um, there are times in his hometown where Jesus can't do uh, miracles. And then there's those curious things in Mark 10 where Jesus is saying, look, you're better off disabled than if you uh, enter you know, then, then you'd be better off disabled in the afterlife than by cutting off your hand, for example, than entering hell with all your parts. After his resurrection, Jesus still has his wounds. Thomas can touch them. There's the so there's all these different different things. Um, you know, the Good Samaritan. Jesus uh, doesn't say that you know the person was immediately healed, but what you get is a picture of some somebody helping. And as you get on out into the church fathers and uh, Jewish and Christian tradition beyond the New Testament, um, the, the discussion about healing uh, is about the same rate. There's not much. Um, and uh, there's even... Uh, theologies going on in the first second centuries about afterlife people having disabilities or differences so yeah i'm very interested in this um yeah and there's concern in in second third century about uh christianity even the first century probably about christianity looking like a healing cult you know like the cult of asclepius or something like that so um all kinds of really interesting research going on and this arena. So that's, that's what I'm doing. That's what I'm looking at. Wow. Okay. So, so do people, uh, why do you think people don't focus on the, uh, the lack of healing passages and what's at stake for them? Are they trying to justify God or something or be optimistic or like help people? Or are they just really misguided? Are they being really deceived in order to discredit the gospel further? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think I think it's a enlightenment inheritance that people are not unaware of. And in our culture, I feel like we have this um, really toxic positivity cult <laughs> going on, where people mm -hmm. are just like, "Always, we got to be positive. Don't bring that bad, you know, juju or mojo or bad vibes in here. Like, let's be positive, as if being positive can just fix everything." Uh, but yeah, this cult of toxic positivity and that's bled over into the church and you, you hit it, the nail on the head with the prosperity group, you know, that is trending in this direction and, um, the faith healing. And sadly, a lot of that came out of our own Wesleyan roots, you know, um, uh, in, in early Pentecostalism and, uh, that sort of Phoebe Palmer and, and those sorts of things. But yeah. Hmm. Do you um do you think it's possible to to just say, "Oh yeah, we're going to be healed." It's just not necessarily now. Um sure, I think so, we can so say our that. Prayers are answered. I we'll think we can answered. say that. But I've read too many testimonies, first-person testimonies of 
people with, um, say, uh, who are on the spectrum of autism, and they're saying like things like, "Look, my difference is what makes me who I am. If that difference is eradicated in the afterlife, I'm not going to be who I am. I don't want to go there." Or I've read people in wheelchairs saying things like, um, "No wheelchairs in heaven. I'm not buying it. You know, uh, yeah. this is this is who I am. The chair has shaped my identity, and it is it is actually." one of the things that has drawn me closer to God. So if that's taken away, then who am I? Now, yeah. on the other hand, there are people saying, yeah, I want to walk and run. I don't want to be in the chair. But I'm also inviting people into thinking, you know, like differently. Uh, could it be much grander than than whether we're, we're, you know, someone who's in a chair is able to just walk again? Or is it mandated that they walk? Like, so this has huge ramifications for our ethics of how we think about difference in our society, has major ramifications for how we think uh, ecclesiologically about differences within our congregations, and it also has major ramifications for our eschatology. And so to answer your question, yes, but no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, when I taught at Bethel College um, in Indiana, Mishwaukee, Indiana, now I guess it's Bethel College University, uh, they have they had one of the biggest American sign language programs in the country, hmm. and uh, so I got to you know meet and interact with you know deaf uh, people, people deaf, yeah. and they don't want to. They think it's a part of who they are. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. They're like, I don't need to be healed from this. Yeah. I'm doing quite fine. You know, yep. so uh, it's very interesting perspective. So to kind of hear that, um, mm-hmm. somehow I think God is going to preserve our identities, like yes, and however we might want them to be preserved. Yeah, it may be that we have choices. Yeah, in eternity. You know. Yes. So yeah, I think there's a there can be a real blindness, unfortunately, to people no wanting to heal others. Because it assumes, you know, they're they're making assumptions of what it means to be whole. Yeah, exactly. And, um, yeah, and and that's uh, problematic. There's a blindness there. I I think it's very problematic. So yeah. Yeah. Well, that's what I'm working on. It's it's sort of a wow. new a new area for me, but I'm having a lot of fun with it, and I've become kind of obsessed with it <laughs> as of late. But yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Well, thank you for sharing. Um, yeah, that's very exciting. It sounds very pastoral. Yeah. And, uh, you know, like, obviously people are drawn to this healing. But, yeah, I mean, I just, with my family, extended family, a, 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 a son just passed away very tragically. Uh, Not struggled. your son. Not your no, son. No, but my, my, my wife's family. And, you know, people were upset, you know, cause they were praying for healing, you know, and right. Jesus says, pray for anything in my name and it'll be done, you know, and that's, you know, so I'm trying to listen, but also, you know, just kind of talking a little bit too, and just like trying to give some perspective on that. Of course, at that time I just needed to listen, which I was doing, but you know, maybe I need to do a better job, but it's a yeah, very I mean, real issue. People struggle with it this. Is. I mean, so the, you know, the question is, you were praying for healing, but yeah, was there anything that needed to be healed? <laughs> um, so that yeah. 
that that's a very important question because again you hit it um, like we have this bias of what it means to be normal or to be whole and uh you know uh, a lot of times these things that these differences they may be they may not be the thing that needs to be hold but they're actually mirrors that show us that our own biases need to be healed you yeah. know yeah. um and so yeah. and I, yeah i think it's so interesting that paul himself you know prayed three times and was not mm. delivered yeah know, from something that was obviously hurting him and th um, this guy he was we do read in acts that Paul had the ability to heal people, right? Or like healing came through Paul. And yet he's got Epaphroditus and Timothy and Trophimus who are going around with him and he doesn't heal them. Um, and he doesn't heal himself. I mean, healing doesn't come to himself. So yeah, this is very interesting. A lot of good work being done in the field of disability uh, theology. Or, and um, so... Yep. Yeah. yeah, are you are you aware that um, that uh, John Cook, uh, Doctor John Cook, uh, has presented on this, mm -mm. Uh, written on this, you know, because their son uh, Tage has has Down syndrome, and he is uh, Tage is just such a joy, um, right? Yeah, I mean, just we love him, you know, and uh, they love him, and obviously, yeah, like he could he contributes so much joy to yeah. our lives, so. You know, but yeah, so John is presented on this. Um, yeah, you might you might find him as a resource. Yeah, um, all right. I'll I'll look into that. Thanks. Well, um we just wanted to share shot. Yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, parting shot. As I say, we just wanted to share with you folks some of the fun things we're working on. And it again, we are, are working on a bunch of other things, but this kind of just conference uh stuff we're working on. But yeah, parting shot. Um uh, you know, <laughs> did you have uh, one? I do. Um, Is it a little bit edgy? Yeah, it might not be uh, appropriate for this episode, so I might. I don't know. I might back off from that. Is there any chance you have an extra one? <laughs> it's got me like rethinking now. Um, um well, I, I just know. go back to Paul Turnier. Uh, I really like Paul Turnier. Uh, he's a great French psychologist, uh, theologian. But uh, yeah, he says, it is quite clear that between love and understanding, there's a very close link. He who loves understands and he who understands loves. One who feels understood feels loved and one who feels loved feels sure, feels sure of being understood. Yeah. Hmm. And that, that kind of relates to, you know, Paul says it's not so much that we know God, but that we're known by God. Right, right. Yeah. So hmm. this speaks to this understanding. It's from his book, To Understand Each Other. Hmm. Well, thanks for that. Thanks for having my back on that. Um, and yeah. thanks to all of y'all for listening. Hope you enjoyed this. And if uh, you're out and about during conference season at ETS or SBL or CPT conference, come and say uh, aloha. We'd love to talk with you. All right. Uh, thanks, Fred. Appreciate it. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you, Michael.
All right. Take care. Aloha. Aloha.